0: the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower landing, and a look at America's first laws of self-governance. Professor Julia Ernst joins us. I'm Lawrence Colletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. <laughs> Hello, listeners. Hope you're having a great day out there, wherever you might be. We have a special episode today. We're going to be talking about the Mayflower Landing, and it's the 400th anniversary of the landing. And so today we're going to be talking about the journey, the people, and what that meant for the future of our country's model for self-governance. And to do that, we have a wonderful guest joining us, Professor Julia Ernst from the University of North Dakota School of Law. Welcome to the show, Professor.
1: Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be with you here today.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. You know, uh, so Professor, I um. In putting the show together, you know, I saw this social media blurb uh, just flashed really quickly on my phone and it talked about the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower Land. It's like, we have to do something about that. You know, Thanksgiving's coming up. And so I talked with my producer, Molly McDonough, and she says, do the Mayflower Compact. I'm like, bingo, there it is. So appropriate for today. You know, obviously 2020 has been a pretty challenging year for everybody with COVID-19. And, you know, this year I've been reading in the news that uh, there's going to be some travel restrictions and some gathering restrictions, depending on the state that you live in and so you know people are feeling pretty isolated it's been a hard year and i thought what an excellent tie-in to the actual Mayflower landing. You know, that was a really tough year for the Pilgrims and the Puritans during that uh, that first really cold winter. You know, without the Native Americans, the and I'm hopefully I don't butcher this, the the Wampanoag tribe, uh, you know, they helped them. Without that support, they may not have been a Plymouth colony uh, come spring. And of course, that ushered in the first uh, Thanksgiving celebration on November 26, 1621. So coming back to you, Professor, you know, without, that Mayflower journey, there would be no Thanksgiving and just what a wonderful tie on to today. And so, my, you know, my opening question to you, I want to talk about the journey, you know, so tell us, I know there was a couple boats chartered, you know, so tell us about how the Mayflower journey got started. Uh, tell us about those passengers, who they were, their walk of life. And then matter of curiosity, this was a one way ticket. So what did they take with them?
1: sure thank you so much that's a very packed question so so let me see if i can go through this the mayflower passengers originally actually the the those who are known as the pilgrims back in 1607 to 1609 fled england initially to escape persecution based from the church of england based on their religion their separatist beliefs and they originally went to holland where they had much greater religious tolerance so they lived in holland between 1609 to about 1619 where they experienced much greater religion, religious tolerance, and uh, however, due to some unrest, political unrest on the mainland, and also the the fear that their children were becoming too Dutch, they decided to go back to England and commission a ship and travel all the way to the United States uh, in order to start a new colony here to be able to practice their freedom of religion here. Of course, they needed to have additional people come with them. They were they knew that they would be going into a wilderness area where they would have to build a colony from scratch. So they brought with them some people who were not originally within their religious community. They they called themselves the saints, and they called the other people that they brought with them the strangers. And among the strangers were craftsmen and marksmen and others, servants, others who would be able to help them start the colony. So this band of 102 passengers uh, started off from Plymouth, England. Uh, along with about 30 crew on the the Mayflower and initially, as you as you correctly pointed out, there were two ships, the Speedwell and the Mayflower. But the Speedwell kept taking on water, so they had two false starts where they had to keep going back. And the the Speedwell was repaired, and they started off a third time and realized the Speedwell just wasn't uh, ocean worthy. So eleven passengers from the Speedwell transferred over to the Mayflower, and that's where we had our 102 passengers then, who ultimately came on the Mayflower to America. And uh, in terms of the what they they brought with them. Of course, the Mayflower was very small. It was only about 106 feet long, about 25 feet wide. And so in addition to 102 passengers and about 30 crew, they didn't have much room for much else. So they would only bring uh, a minimal amount of clothing, uh, tools, household implements such as cooking utensils, uh, some swords and muskets, um, chests for storage, and then of course food comprised of of items that could last for a long time, such as dried beef and salt pork, bacon, oats, peas, wheat, hard biscuits, some butter and salt and oil and vinegar, and of course, beer. So it was a, a very tight ship and a very treacherous voyage over to the Americas,
0: yeah, what did you make of that? so I read in the, some of the historical accounts that there was uh, the suspicion that the speedwell wasn't really taking on water. it was uh, they didn't really want to go, and the thought was we'll just delay this. and uh, I guess what one of the leaders of of the pilgrims, you know, suspected that it may have just been a ploy to upgrade the ship with some repairs?
1: That was I've read that as well, and perhaps some of the crew did not want to make the the trip all the way over to the Americas. They had originally planned to leave England much earlier in the summer, when they could travel, when the the winds were favorable, when the waters would be much calmer. Um, however, due to a lot of problems they encountered with the investors and with trying to get the the charter from the king, etc., they didn't end up starting until much later uh, in the season, and so. They the weather would be much more dangerous for traveling over. And so that was a suspicion that some of the crew members on the Speedwell didn't really want to go. So, But they didn't want to get, you know, um, breach their contract. That would have been bad as well. So, so they may well have a little bit made up the story about the Speedwell not being seaworthy.
0: Yeah. And as I understand it, you're just kind of reading the, the more difficult passages from, uh, you know, from the old world to the new world, as opposed to going back because of the prevailing winds. But uh, anyway, obviously a very, uh, very tough journey. And when they arrived, they didn't actually arrive where they intended. And so that played into some disagreements on the ship, which eventually would turn into the, Mayf- uh, the Mayflower Compact. So walk us through that. What happened there?
1: Sure. Well, because of the treacherous weather, they were blown off course. Originally, they were—they had their charter from the king, their permission to arrive in what was then known as the northern parts of Virginia, which actually was part of the Hudson Bay, which is now part of New York. But the Virginia Company had the land all the way from what we now consider Virginia, of course, all the way up through the Hudson River. So they were originally supposed to, to arrive there. But being blown off course, they arrived on November 9th near the Cape Cod area. And they tried to sail south however they ran into uh, shoals and rocky journey and they were afraid that the ships were the ship was going to be torn apart on the rocks and also were encountering a, a lot of uh, bad weather and so they ended up turning around and going back into Cape Cod where they uh, would be protected from the winds and they they started to look for a place where they could settle there but that uh, because they weren't settling in their original location where they had permission from the king that caused some dissension among some of the passengers.
0: Okay. And that dissension turned into some disagreements that may have torn the group apart. And of course, I think it was early recognized that if they were going to survive building a brand new colony, they were going to have to stick together. So uh, in terms of that, who was it that came up with the idea of putting together the Mayflower Compact?
1: that's that's right so when they were aboard the ship the governor of the ship held the legal authority so while they were aboard the ship they had to they had someone you know kind of the law of the ship that they, they, they had to obey and of course the Saints the religious band they had their leaders and and they had lived together in harmony in Holland and uh, had kind of an informal form of self-governance but some of the strangers were the ones who started making these mutinous rumblings um including my ancestor John Billington was pretty Presumed to be among them, and uh, however, many of the leaders of the of the saints and strangers realized, as you mentioned, that without everyone pulling together, and they knew the the weather was treacherous. They knew that a very harsh winter was coming on. They knew that they were alone, or thought that they were alone in this region, uh, alone in the wilderness to to build this this colony. So, um, so needed to pull together the Mayflower Compact. So that's where they uh, decided that in order to keep the community together, they would. Have have to reach an agreement where all the saints and all of the strangers would agree (laughs) to remain a part of that community. And that's how the Mayflower Compact
0: arose. And so, Professor, the colonists aboard the Mayflower, they signed that Mayflower Compact on November 11th, 1620. Can you tell us about some of those key provisions as well as the key important people that signed that document?
1: Initially, they set forth their allegiance to King James and to England. They needed good relations with England to survive, so they wanted to set that forth right from the start. They also mentioned the Christian influence uh, and their uh, their Christian faith. Interestingly, however, they did not mention not either separatism, which the Pilgrims, the religious band, believed, or nor the Church of England, which was adhered to by the the King James, and he was indeed the head of the Church of England. They didn't mention either of those. And, uh, instead, they mentioned more generally their Christian faith. And that actually is a precursor to the Declaration of Independence that, that does not even mention Christianity, but uses even broader terms like nature's God or supreme judge, not even mentioned in Christianity at all, uh, but, but um, acknowledging broader deference to different religious diversities within the United States. And the Constitution, of course, only mentions religion in the fact that it's forbids a religious test for any offices, so anyone of any religious faith or no religious faith can uh, have office within the United States. And of course, later, the Establishment Clause within the First Amendment that uh, establishes the separation of church and state. So again, alluding to the, the religious diversity within the United States and also that freedom of religion. So the really important provision with respect to governance in the United States is the fact that they agreed to covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic. So again, establishing a civil governance for the students and the strangers and everyone in the Plymouth colony. They said that this was for the better ordering and preservation of the colony so again that they would all agree to the laws and that they would frame such just and equal laws ordinances acts and constitutions to, that were thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony in other words they were ensconcing into the mayflower compact ju- this concept of justice and this concept of equality which was really revolutionary considering the fact that in back in england they had a an absolute monarchy and they had a very high hierarchical structure of both uh, governance and uh, civil society within England. And then only if the since the government is there for the general good of the colony, again, establishing the fact that the purpose of government is intended for the good of the people instead of just the good of the monarch or the, or the good of the hierarchy. Due to that, they would give all due submission and obedience. So again, this is this concept of the consent of the governed uh, within the Mayflower Compact. You also asked about the signatures. It was signed by 41 adult males. So basically all of the adult males, including indentured servants, again, establishing a very democratic process within the Mayflower Compact itself. The only males who didn't sign it were those who were sick. And of course, it wasn't signed by the women or the children, but women were very important in terms of the governance of the church, their congregation and therefore, of course, did have uh, a voice within the structure in within the colony, even though they didn't sign the Mayflower Compact.
0: Now I realize the colonists were up against a the lot. They're in a, uh, a foreign environment, uh, the wilderness, and they've got a lot of challenges in front of them. But it seems kind of risky, you know. In, in one, in one hand, you're giving a hat tip to the king, and then on the other, you're talking about self governance, uh, you know, with with uh, with the people there under self rule. And so, was there was there a notion that that was a risky behavior at the time?
1: This was definitely something that was new, but these concepts had been around for quite some time. So, for example, with the governance of their congregation, the religious congregation had been self-governing within their congregation for quite some time. Of course, this was problematic with respect to the Church of England, because according to the Church of England, the congregations were not supposed to be governing themselves. So that was very risky as well. And then, of course, when they applied that to their civil governance, that was also a relatively new and quite revolutionary. revolutionary concept as well. So they were trying to balance their allegiance to the king because, of course, they needed the king's blessing to uh, continue to have ships providing them with provisions. But they also were uh, establishing these new, quite revolutionary concepts of self-governance.
0: How long did the Mayflower Compact last as the operative law for the colony?
1: Well, the colony existed as a separate colony until 1691, when by the, an order of the king, they were merged officially into the larger Massachusetts Bay Colony. Uh, and the Mayflower Compact was in existence and was operative, but really more as an overarching law or an overarching constitution that bound the Plymouth Colony together. In 1636, King Charles decreed that the members of Plymouth Colony and the elder lying towns that were in that same region, that they should codify all of the laws that they had developed under the Mayflower Compact. And this became what is known as the Pilgrim Code of Laws. And of course, the Pilgrim Code of Laws reflected back to the Mayflower Compact and alluded to it as their initial founding document. But then the Plymouth Code of Laws really fleshed it out in terms of their day-to-day statutes.
0: Well, Professor, I want to transition into some fun questions. And and, uh, as you mentioned before, you're a descendant of of Mayflower ancestors. And so as I came to learn from my research, there are some reported 35 million descendants of the Mayflower. And some of them are very famous. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your family that was aboard the Mayflower and also share some of your favorite uh, descendants from that ship?
1: Sure. Well, my family was the Billington family. So John Sr. and Eleanor, they were married. And then John Jr., who died in 1627, so was young and did not have any descendants. And then their younger son, Francis, uh, who had uh, married and then had quite a few children, was my ancestor. As I mentioned before, John Billington and his family were known as the Rabble Rousers, or uh, according to Governor William Bradford's account, the profanest family among them. And there oh, was wow. there were some rivalries between the Billington family and the Bradford family. So, and of course, the Governor Bradford wrote the history, so this is from his perspective. But John Billington actually was also notorious for being the first person to be hanged in the colony for for killing a man.
0: Oh my goodness!
1: Um, but there were some some question in terms of whether about the circumstances of the incident and and whether he received a fair trial, but he does have some notoriety. And there are lots of other stories that I could share. But in terms of some other famous descendants of the Mayflower, President John Quincy Adams and President John Adams were descendants of the Mayflower. There are several other presidents, including Zachary Taylor, Ulysses S. Grant, James Garfield, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and George Bush and George H.W. Bush. Some other celebrities, too, who are descendants of the Mayflower are Laura Ingalls Wilder of the Little House on the Prairie fame, astronaut Alan Shepard, Marilyn Monroe, Orson Welles, Cokie Roberts, Noah Webster, Amelia Earhart, Alec Baldwin, Sally Field, and many others. So it's really fun to see uh, who you might be related to through the, the Mayflower descendants.
0: According to the site that I looked at, uh, Hugh Hefner and Clint Eastwood were also descendants. Is that true? That's right. Absolutely. Oh my <laughs> That's really funny. That's awesome. Well, Professor, my last question for you. I, I know that England kept some pretty good records back in those days in terms of shipping and trade and things like that. And so do we know what happened to the Mayflower ship after its voyage to the New World?
1: The Mayflower ship returned to England in the spring of 1621. Of course, they could not return beforehand because of the bad weather and much of the crew were ill. But it returned in 1621, and there aren't very good records in terms of what happened to it until 1624, several years later, when it was discovered that it was appraised for the purposes of probate and was described as being in ruins. So most likely it was sold off as scrap at that point. However, there is a Mayflower, II, which was built to the specifications of the Mayflower One. And that can be seen in Plymouth Colony when people visit the Old Town Plymouth Colony to see the history of the United States.
0: Excellent. Well, they should definitely go out there and check it out. Maybe uh, maybe after COVID-19 passes.
1: That's right. And hopefully the celebrations that were planned for 2020, the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower's landing, uh, hopefully they'll be rescheduling those celebrations for 2021. So folks should look forward to to attending in
0: 2021. Well, Professor, thank you so much for joining us today. This was really delightful.
1: Thank you very much. I really appreciate being able to talk about this exciting moment in our history.
0: And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. I hope everybody out there has a wonderful Thanksgiving, even if you can't be with everyone you'd like to be with. And I know from my part, I'll probably be solo. Actually, I will be solo. i probably eating some pizza and watching some movies and maybe some video games making the most of it. But uh, anyway, I want to thank my producer, Molly McDonough, for coming up with this idea for the episode and our LTN team for all of their hard work. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. <laughs>